it was definitely a deviant, demented, diabolical plan that was executed against my daughter. And that's why I've been saying, and I mean with every fiber of my being, when I'm talking to this person, you made my daughter your prey, and now you're my prey. Hello, and welcome to Thin Air, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the missing with new episodes every two weeks. Thin Air is hosted by me, Daniel Calderon. And me, Jordan Sims. We are two friends and writers who wanted to share the stories of those left behind and the social issues that surround these haunting cases. For more information about us and our podcast, check out thinairpodcast.com, where you'll find blogs on all our episodes, links to our sources, and more. Thank you for listening. Thin Air is an independently produced and published podcast. If you want to help support Thin Air, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. There, you can donate any amount, but if you donate $5 or more, you'll gain access to bonus mini-episodes that we publish in between our regularly scheduled episodes. It's a win-win for both of us. Also, we wanted to let you know about a new podcast that we think you might enjoy. It's called The Fall Line. It re-examines the case of Jeanette and Danette Millbrooks, who we featured in episode 8. Here's a preview of what you can expect. The Fall Line Podcast, a true crime audio serial, investigates the March 18, 1990 disappearance of Augusta, Georgia twins Danette and Jeanette Millbrook. The twins, who were 15 at the time, were treated without cause as runaways, and their case was closed less than a week after their 17th birthdays. Their family worked tirelessly to get the case reopened, and finally managed to attract the notice of a newly elected sheriff in 2013. Since then, there has been no movement in the case, no leads, no investigative breakthroughs, and no answers. Why was the twins' case closed? What happened to their original case file? Why were they removed from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's database? The Fall Line podcast works to amplify the voices of the twins' family and to uncover facts, explore and dispel rumors, and develop theories in the case. Tune in. Join the discussion on Facebook, and remember, we must find Danette and Jeanette Millbrook. Find us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash thinair. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals from blueapron.com slash thinair. I want to begin this episode with a news story that was largely untrue, but over time developed into a story of its own, serving as the catalyst for the way one police department in America deals with missing teenagers of color. The story begins in March of 2017, when a Sirius XM radio host named Danielle Moody Mills, whose Twitter describes her as an equality advocate and politics and pop culture junkie, tweeted the following, quote, 
can someone explain to me how 14 black girls go missing in 24 hours in D.C. and it's not a goddamn news story? The tweet is accompanied by an image of four missing black girls above what looks like an actual news headline that echoes Moody Mills' tweet. It reads, 14 girls have gone missing in D.C. in 24 hours. There's no actual news story to click on, though. No link, no blog, no data, nothing. Just this image with its alarmist headline. But that was enough. And like any viral sensation, the story began to spread. First, by retweets from actress Viola Davis and rapper LL Cool J, and then over and over again more than 50,000 times. Then, local news stations began weighing in. 14 black girls had gone missing in Washington, D.C. Nearly a dozen black and Latina girls. More than a dozen teenagers have been reported missing. At one town hall meeting in Washington, D.C., a young girl breaks down in tears. We can't go nowhere by ourselves. We can't do nothing because we have to get worried about somebody trying to take us. But the panic and hysteria the tweet created was mostly based on misinformation. Relisha Rudd, for example, the youngest of the girls pictured, was eight years old when she went missing after her parents left her in the care of a shelter janitor who would later go on to shoot his wife and then himself. Relisha has been missing for over three years. Or Phoenix Colden, who was pictured next to Relisha. She's been missing for over six years and disappeared from Missouri, not DC. In fact, only one of the four girls pictured with the story had actually gone missing in March of that year. The reason this story is so powerful though is not because the original story was false, but because of the real questions it brings to light. Questions that make us contemplate larger systemic and societal issues, like why haven't I heard of Relisha Rudd or Phoenix Colden? And how do police departments and media outlets handle missing persons cases that deal with people of color? Ironically, you can trace the images in the tweet back to a New York Daily News article that had been published the day before and written by Black Lives Matter activist Sean King. The article's headline reads, quote, It's no accident we hear so little about missing black girls in this country, end quote. It's in this article that King asks those very important questions about media coverage and policing when it comes to missing black girls. Real questions that quickly got overshadowed by news outlets looking to capitalize off of something more sensational, albeit false. As soon as the story began gaining traction, King himself weighed in on the story, tweeting, These photos were taken from a story I just wrote, which is fine, but many of these girls are not from D.C. and have been missing for years. Followed later by another tweet reading, Dear people advocating for missing black girls, Please be sure you are spreading the truth and actual facts. It matters. It really matters. I can only presume the reasons why it matters so much. After all, these are actual missing girls whose cases can only be solved with facts, not fiction. But more than that, there is a reputation on the line for King. Being a part of an activist movement like Black Lives Matter, which so many people attempt to discredit or belittle, 
It must be important to make sure that the stories that originate from people within the group are accurately represented and communicated to the public. Which is what makes this story so complicated to report on, because it's largely untrue, but there's an actual story here. Why do we hear so little about missing black girls in this country, or about missing black people in general? I am Natalie Wilson, and I am one of the co-founders of the Black and Missing Foundation. It was started because there was a young lady by the name of Tamika Houston from Martinburg, South Carolina. And we read how her family struggled to get any type of media coverage. A year later, Natalie Holloway went missing and she dominated the news. So we wanted to understand, you know, why is it this one young lady, Natalie Holloway, dominated local and national news and Tamika did not. Natalie founded the organization along with her sister-in-law, Derica. So we decided to do some research, and at the time, 30% of all persons missing were of color, and that number has since grown as close to 40%. So we decided to channel our professions. I'm in media relations, and Derica is in law enforcement. And those are the two critical professions needed to help us find us. And we said, you know, why not us? Why can't we do something? Why do we have to wait for someone else to do it? And that's how the organization was created. So the Black and Missing Foundation is a nonprofit organization that brings awareness to missing people of color. Not only do we bring awareness to them, but we also search or help the families search for their missing loved ones. And as equally important is that we teach or educate our community about personal safety. The Black and Missing Foundation is trying to bridge the gap between the disproportionate number of Black people who go missing compared to their representation in the general public. For example, the FBI reports that 38% of all missing youths in this country are Black, despite the fact that Blacks make up only 13% of the U.S. population. It was this problem, too, that the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department was trying to solve in March 2017, the same time that so many people were eager to believe that 14 girls had gone missing in D.C. in 24 hours. Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser explains how the confusion may have started. Prior to 2017, we only notified the public of a missing person's case when we suspect a foul play, okay. a kidnapping, an abduction. Uh, starting in 2017, we notified the public of all missing children uh, because we think, no matter the circumstances of a child leaving home, mm -hmm. that any day away from a responsible adult puts that child in danger. Turns out that during this time period, the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department's social media policy changed from only alerting and making public stories of missing persons if they were considered critical or endangered to alerting the public in all instances of missing persons, regardless of their status. Here's Natalie again. Well, let me start off by saying I commend um, D.C. police for utilizing social media um, to bring awareness to their missing. Um, awareness is key in finding, you know, any miss missing person. Um, what I do think in hindsight, um, I think that 
the police department could have alerted the public that they were utilizing social media because you started seeing, I believe it was late February into March, we started seeing a large number of people, especially children, being featured on social media as, as being missing. So that's why there was such a firestorm. The firestorm that erupted did, however, raise some very important questions and got a lot of people talking about an issue that many, Natalie included, have been working really hard to help communicate to the public for a very long time. No, and we've been sounding the alarm for quite a while, and that's why the organization was created, because we know and we have seen and we have heard feedback from family members um, that there's a disparity in the coverage and the treatment of our missing. It might not be intuitive, but when Natalie uses the phrase, our missing, she's including a portion of the missing population that sometimes gets overlooked, but is included in the statistical data runaways. For example, the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department's website says that they have, so far in 2017, received 1,817 missing persons cases. However, only 54 of those cases remain open and active. Now, those sound like impressive numbers. That is, until you realize that most of those solved cases are actually just runaways who have been found and returned home, voluntarily or not. Here's Peter Newsham, the acting police chief in Washington, D.C., addressing this very concern in an interview with PBS NewsHour. We find 99% of those kids. Uh, I think the awareness that has come about as a result of this, though, is a lot of people are asking the question, uh, why are they leaving in the first place? And the other question, which is really important to get to the bottom of, is... Um, what happened to them while they were away. Those questions that Newsham asks at the end, why did they run away and what happened to them while they were gone, are the same questions that Natalie and her organization have been trying to answer for a very long time. One child is missing or one person is missing, that's one too many. And we have to understand, you know, a number of these kids have now returned home But why were they running? What were they running from? And ultimately, what were they running to? From the same news segment from PBS NewsHour, they spoke to Gabrielle Martin, who has been homeless in Washington, D.C. since she was 15. She's now 27. Even though I'm 27 now, I was still considered a runaway because I ran away when I was a juvenile. I know a few of those people on that list, and it's like, they're not really missing persons. They're people who just chose to move on because of what they left behind sucked. Like, I think people don't really care about kids that are in the system. And that's what makes us choose to run away. It seems, then, that the real story in D.C. centers around addressing issues related to teenagers running away and not the fear-mongering idea that people are being snatched off the streets in broad daylight. Regardless, if that many children are running away, then perhaps there is a way to fix the problem before it even happens. And that's exactly what the mayor of Washington, D.C. is trying to do. Here's Mayor Bowser again. 
We wanted to be very careful. Not only did we want to rise and raise attention, and let me just be clear that we have no particular issue of, of children leaving home in the District of Columbia any more than any other jurisdiction. The difference is we're telling people about it mm -hmm. and getting that information out right away so kids can come home more quickly. Uh, so I have directed the police chief to put more officers there so when we know we have a missing child, we can do more to try to unite the, the child and family uh, more quickly. Um, but we're also looking across our agencies, our social service agencies, frankly, so that we're supporting the families mm -hmm. while the child um, hasn't been located. And when they get home, we're setting up a protocol to make sure that home is the right place for them. Right, that uh, they're safe at home. That, that yeah. they're safe yeah. and that we're going to make those resources available. But also, Joy, what's important about this attention yep. is we want kids who are vulnerable yeah. to call us before to, they to leave. To contact before yes. they leave home. The challenge then is that when there is a missing persons case that involves a person of color, there is oftentimes an assumption that the individual has decided to leave voluntarily or has disappeared as a result of participating in some type of illegal activity. What we see many times is that when a person of color goes missing, especially their child, they are classified as a runaway. And if you're classified as a runaway, you do not receive the Amber Alert or any type of media coverage. Also, we notice that persons of color, when they are reported missing, they are shunned many times by law enforcement and they are stereotyped as being involved in some type of criminal activity. So there isn't a sense of urgency or seriousness with the case. With the lack of support from law enforcement, Many families of the missing have to learn how to be advocates for themselves in the search for their missing loved ones. We have to advocate for our missing. Um, we say all the time that it takes all of us. All of us have a responsibility to bring awareness to and help find our missing. So it's not just law enforcement. It's not just the media. It's our community coming together. It's parents and grandparents and our neighbors coming together to help us find us. And one person who knows all too well what it means to advocate on behalf of their missing child is Valencia Harris, whose daughter, Unique, has been missing from the Washington, D.C. area since 2010. My name is Valencia Harris, and I am the mother of Unique Harris, who's been missing from Washington, D.C. since 10-10-10. Um, I've noticed that you seem to be the one that's like spearheading the investigation. Like, if there's a lead detective on this case, it's been you it seems like right is that fair to say <laughs> yeah pretty much I, I i didn't i've never looked at it that way but i guess yeah that's a fair statement what are some of the things that you've done over the years to sort of help get attention to your daughter's case i've done the view with you know joy behar whoopi goldberg elizabeth hasselbeck as valencia describes to me the great efforts of which she has gone to get unique story into the media I have to wonder if she would have had to go through the same struggles had her daughter been white and from a prominent background. But despite the momentous task of which she's been faced, she never once during our interview let it break her spirit. It's been various things. And now I'm on Thin Air Podcast. Despite all of her efforts, in the early days of her daughter Unique's disappearance, she struggled to get the police to investigate because they believed that Unique had left on her own accord, falling into line with the pattern Natalie previously mentioned. 
it's unfair to these families because they're already, you know, suffering. I mean, Unique has two young kids that desperately want to know what's going on with their mom. And I think about Valencia quite often. I remember her saying, you know, one of the things that she wants to know is, is her daughter okay? Is she eating? Is she cold? Is she, I remember she said when she drives by and she sees a bag, like maybe a bag of trash or a big trash bag, she wonders, is my daughter in there? After the break, what happened to Unique Harris? Her story is next. Today's episode of Thin Air is brought to you by Blue Apron. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. It has honestly changed the way I eat as the meals have given me new and exciting dishes to try that I would have never imagined on my own. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, local family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Whether it's pork chops and miso butter or spicy shrimp coconut curry, Blue Apron is always bringing you the best. Thanks again to Blue Apron for supporting this podcast. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash thin air. Again, that's blueapron.com slash thin air. Before the break, we were speaking to Valencia Harris, whose 24-year-old daughter, Unique, went missing in Washington, D.C. sometime in the early morning hours of October 10th, 2010. The previous day, October 9th, Valencia and her daughter, Unique, spoke over the phone. That evening of October the 9th of 2010, I spoke with Unique probably about 8.30 or 9.30 that evening, somewhere in the in that hour um, time frame. And everything appeared to be, you know, okay, normal. Her and my grandsons were there. She had my great, great niece over there spending the night with them, having sort of a fun night because she was kind of like settling in to her new apartment. We got off the phone that um, night on the 9th and nothing was amiss in our conversation or anything like that. It didn't seem to me that she appeared to be in any type of distress or, you know, under any stress at all. As a matter of fact, she was pretty upbeat by, you know, her new apartment that she had attained. Unique's new apartment marked a new beginning in her life. A chance to start over despite Valencia's hesitations that her daughter and grandsons would be moving into a neighborhood riddled with drugs and crime. What is the neighborhood like? Oh God, it's 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 awful. I let her know very fiercely that I did not like that neighborhood. That neighborhood was no neighborhood for a young single mom to raise two small boys. There's a high turnover rate of people moving in, moving out. There are drug deals going on. Um, There are murders taking place in this neighborhood. In fact, 
Approximately a week before Unique disappeared, she had witnessed a murder happen right outside her apartment window. She did witness a murder. She called me in, in a hysterical state when she witnessed, you know, this person's body laying, you know, right visible for her to see it from her window. And she was hearing gunshots. And my response to her was to get away from the window in the Earlier onset of Unique's investigation, I made gave that information to the Washington, D.C. Police Department, and that has been investigated thoroughly. And that investigation has led to us going in other directions. However, that's not to say that if, uh, if it's necessary, we won't revisit that. But at this particular time, it doesn't look like that homicide had anything to do with Unique's abduction. What is the reasoning for law enforcement being so certain that that had nothing to do with it? Do they provide any evidence or sort of what's the... Well, uh, according to the information that I know, they've already made arrests in that homicide and anybody that would, you know, have been suspected of Unique's abduction or anything pertaining to her abduction has been thoroughly investigated, polygraphed, and so forth and so on. If you had given her all of this advice that this was not the place to go, why did she ultimately decide to move in there? Well, I think the primary reason is because I raised my children to be very fiercely independent. And at this particular time, Unique had recently in June of 2010 relocated back to Washington, D.C. from the Richmond, Virginia area. Why did she decide to make the move back to Washington, D.C.? I believe it was to to be and to have my grandsons closer to me. And not only that, she was going through some other issues with the children's father in reference to a bitter custody battle that was going on between my grandson's father and Unique at the time. In the midst of Unique's relationship struggles, she decided to move into her new apartment as a stepping stone to bigger and better things. In fact, Unique had recently enrolled to go back to school to get her degree in massage therapy. She had just gotten approved to go to Centura College. And as a matter of fact, the people with the financial aid office had called me about a week after Unique's abduction and told me that she had been accepted into their program and that she was a goal to start school there. Unique would never be able to go back to school. Because the next morning, after a night of movies with her two sons, ages three and four, and her great-niece, around the age of ten, the children woke up to an empty apartment. No signs or clues of Unique anywhere. My great-niece had called her mom the first thing that morning on the 10th when the children awakened. The morning of 10, 10, 10, and could not find and locate Unique within the apartment. So I guess naturally my great niece called her mom and informed her mom that when they went to bed the night before, Unique was there in the living room of the apartment watching TV. And then the next morning when they woke up approximately 8.30 to 9.30 the next morning of October the 10th, Unique was gone. My great niece's mom informed me at the phone call that she placed to me that afternoon that she had been trying back and forth to get in contact with Unique via her cell phone and calling the children back throughout the day, 
where she was not getting any responses from Unique herself. My re first reply to my great niece's mom was, what do you mean you haven't heard from her this morning? And what do you mean those children have been in that apartment since this morning by themselves? It was true. The three children had been alone in the apartment all night and all morning. Immediately after hearing this news, Valencia hangs up with her great niece's mom and calls the police. I instantly called the police because this is that was that's just definitely and totally completely out of my daughter's character. So I called the police and they asked me, you know, certain questions that at that time I had not had enough um, information from my great niece's mom to answer. So at that point, I definitely let the police know that there was a situation. And once I gathered some more inf information, I will be calling them back. This was one of the first signs for Valencia that the police department at the time wasn't taking Unique's disappearance seriously, leaving much of the initial investigative work up to Valencia and her father. When Unique's grandfather arrives at the apartment, he finds the door locked with the children inside. The door was locked, and now whether we, we don't know whether the door was actually locked from the inside or the outside. And the reason that that is prevalent in this case is because along with Unique, her house keys were taken with her, her keys, her cell phone, and her. As Unique's grandfather secures the children, he brings them to Valencia's apartment, where she is recovering from surgery on a broken leg. He then returns to Unique's apartment to search for further clues about what might have happened to her in between the time the children went to bed and the time they woke up. Information that he and Valencia can use to convince the police that Unique is missing and in danger. One of the first things he discovered in the apartment were Unique's glasses, folded neatly and resting on her pillow. And the position that her glasses were found let me know that, you know, my daughter was supposed to be in resting for the night because she had a habitual ritual of folding her glasses up and putting them on her pillow when she laid down to go to sleep at night. And that's exactly how my dad found her glasses. Unique's apartment happened to be on the top floor of this building, which definitely let me know that my daughter couldn't have gotten out of that building of her own volition down all those stairs and out of that building without the assistance of her glasses, which she is very, very reliant on just for everyday seeing. You know, she needed her glasses from the time she wakes up in the morning until the time she goes to bed at night. It's sometime between 3 a.m. and 9 a.m. when Unique vanishes from her apartment, these times later verified by phone records. We have to keep in mind that this incident, according to the timeline that the detectives on Unique's case and myself have come up with, it was between the hours of a little after 3 a.m. in the morning and 9 o'clock in the morning of October the 10th when my grandsons and my great niece woke up that next day because we had a last hit as far as a phone call that we know that Unique was actively on up until approximately a few minutes after 3 a.m. on 10, 10 10 Who was she calling at 3 a.m.? What can you tell me about that phone call? Well, actually, 
actually the phone call actually came into her phone at that time of the morning and there was a, a, a fairly brief conversation and and you know my assumption is because of the hour of the morning there was a very brief conversation between her and that individual which you know to protect the confidentiality of the investigation i cannot disclose so are they not a suspect in the case or oh no at this juncture no they're not a suspect in the case because we have to keep in mind those phone records i fought for them in the beginning so that was like you know going on seven years ago it was definitely a phone call to someone that we had in the net earlier on and the person that was on that phone call has already been brought in questioned and polygraphed and removed from our quote unquote persons of interest because the story checked out. With little evidence of foul play, Valencia began to realize the struggle she was up against in regards to convincing the police department that her daughter had been taken against her will and was in immediate danger. When Unique initially goes missing, what was the early investigation into her disappearance like? Oh, it was horrible because I got so much resistance from newspaper reporters and journalists to the Metropolitan Police Department as if my daughter had just took off and just, you know, left her children. And from the onset, I was telling them that this is not my daughter's character for number one. And for number two, she could not have gone anywhere on her own volition without her glasses that she's so reliant on. So it was definitely an uphill battle. I mean, even I can remember with my crutches and my boot on my leg, and I walked up to the the police department to question them about the report, and I wanted to talk to the detective on my daughter's case and so forth and so on. And I was told right to my face that, I would have to come back because it was a holiday weekend and the Mrs. Purses Department of 7th District Police Station was closed. So that let me know right there that at that juncture, my daughter's case was not being taken seriously. And then the second incident is the original missing persons flyers that were generated by the Metropolitan Police Department um, listed my daughter as being non-critical. Now, in my way of thinking, there is no such thing as a non-critical missing person. So that was a battle for about the first week or two to get that upgraded to being a critical missing person. I must bring up and make a point of was under the former chief of police, Kathy Lanier's regime. Why do you use the word regime? Because I don't think that she took my daughter's case as seriously as she should have. Kathy Lanier was actually the chief of police for about four or five years before she moved on to another professional career opportunity. And I have not had one conversation with that woman. That woman has never extended to me any type of support 
as far as, you know, Miss Hurst, we're going to do everything, you know, that I can within the power that I have in the police department to help you find your daughter. How did that make you feel to be so unsupported by your local police? It made me feel more driven. It made me feel more tenacious. It made me feel more, you know, of a feeling of I'm going to persevere regardless of the police department does. It really did because few times since my daughter has been missing, I've been at the brink of the heck with the police department. I'll find my daughter myself. Why do you think that the police department didn't give your daughter's case the credence it deserved? I think because of a stereotype that, you know, young African-American women will, you know, readily, nonchalantly and cavalierly leave their children behind. I mean, when you have a police officer that's taking a report for your missing child to ask you a question like, okay, well, do you think she ran off with one of her boyfriends or a boyfriend, or did she get tired of her life? I mean, what kind of question is that to ask? Did Chandra Levy's mother get asked that? Did Natalie Holloway's mom get answered that? I mean, I can go on and on for days. And not only that, the, the, the fight that I had to even get any type of local we're not even talking about the international attention that I've driven to get for my daughter, but just the local media. The first week that my daughter was missing, they were showing and saw a priority and a more sensational story with the trial of Chandra Levy. And this gentleman was the alleged murderer okay her mom had had closure and found her daughter nine years prior so i have quite a few reasons why i feel that there is most definitely a disparity as far as my daughter's race the demographics of where she lived and once again as i said stereotypes this all falls in line with the ideas Natalie Wilson talked to us about in the first half of this episode. This assumption that when someone of color goes missing, that they have left voluntarily. And yes, there are statistics to suggest that this is the case a large percentage of the time. And not just with people of color, but all missing persons cases in general. However, does that mean they're not worth looking into or publicizing or trying to solve? Here's Natalie again. From speaking with Valencia, there's so many things that do not add up. Unique, wore glasses. You know, she couldn't see without them. She left them at home. Unique had just moved into that community from Richmond, and she, that was not a, a community that she was familiar with. So there were so many things that don't add up regarding Unique's case. And I feel that many times that's the impression or that's the belief that we have walked away from our environment or, again, we're involved in some type of criminal activity and we're not. While most of Valencia's frustrations were from the original detectives in charge of her daughter's investigation, it seems like the new police captain, 
Michelle Karen, is doing all she can to help Valencia find the answers she's been looking for. It's very active and very open. My first name is Michelle, last name is spelled C-A-R-O-N, and I'm a captain with the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. I work in the Youth and Family Services Division on uh, MPD, and one of the units within that uh, division is for missing persons. So I supervise the uh, missing persons unit who is involved with uh, investigating this case. Um, we have two detectives who have been working it pretty consistently over the past couple of years, Detective Brian Wise and Detective Diane Davis. They have been going to uh, community events in the area of her disappearance. They've been working closely with Unique's mom uh, in reference to attending those events and handing out flyers and hoping to continue to keep Unique in the forefront of everybody's mind in case they see something or they hear something or um, you know, it triggers a memory of something that they may have seen or heard. Captain Karen couldn't share with us any of the specific details of Unique's case. As far as what evidence we have, we can't really release any of that information. Um, it, because it is part of the investigation, I can't tell you what significance it does or does not have. can't release whether or not those kind of things have uh, been panning out for us. While I definitely understand why she couldn't share with us some of the details we wanted, she was very insistent that her and the two detectives are doing all they can to solve Unique's case. We investigate all the tips that were provided for us. Um, any information that people provide have provided in the past seven years or, or will provide hopefully from this podcast and hearing it. I mean, we definitely follow through and try to see whether or not they're legitimate or not. I don't think that everyone thinks about Unique Harris every day, but when we have media attention like this and then people hear the name, I'm hoping that that will bring to light, you know, someone remembers something and they can get us some more information about us. But beyond Unique's case, Karen was able to share with us how that story we reported on at the beginning of this podcast about the 14 missing D.C. girls has ultimately affected the way her police department communicates with the public in regards to missing people. I think it helped us provide more, get more information when the information is brought to light, which social media, I think, is a huge proponent for bringing information forward to people. And they seem to think it's um, a new issue when it's not a new issue. It's something that we've been working on. But to have other people's eyes on those topics, whether it's missing persons or, you know, human trafficking or, or all the other myriad of things that we deal with, it's better for us. I'd rather have more people involved in paying attention and looking for clues or looking for, you know, indicators than have it been incumbent upon, you know, the few people we have in our units who are who's doing all the work. So um, I think it's been a great asset for us to have that be much more public than, than people may have originally thought of. As we've seen so often in many of our episodes, sometimes the police department is tasked with an almost impossible duty to find clues and answers to a crime of which there are few leads to go on. I think watching the family and friends struggle is the most difficult part. I think a lot of detectives get very, not personally involved, but get attached to their cases. And, you know, they're in contact with this family and the friends for so long and so often when they're doing the investigations that, you know, it's really hard to see these people just not have the answers. Where. You know, while homicide cases are unfortunate and, and tragic, I think having the closure on it is something that people who are related to missing person cases don't get. And that's the hardest part because you can't give them that final answer of what's, what's happened. And there are just so many questions. Why? Who? What? 
as you've collected all this information and you've reached out in so many ways, what do you think happened to Unique? I think that somewhere in those five weeks that my daughter returned to D.C. and was in her own apartment, someone saw my daughter, got a fixation on my daughter, attempted to befriend my daughter, watched my daughter, and when they felt like they had the perfect opportunity to strike, they struck. And I'm talking about a very, very demented-minded individual. As far as in a diabolical way, I, I mean, I think this was definitely some diabolical intent even prior to this, you know, abduction of my daughter. You believe it was this calculated, planned out situation? Oh, yeah, because, you know, in thinking about it over the last, you know, six and almost seven years, I don't think they would have gotten away this untraceable for this long because they're doing things in haste when it's at random. But if somebody has the time to sit back and watch a person's movement and their daily travels and how they, what time they take their children to school and what time they're in with their children at night and you know, when they're, you know, going to the laundromat in the next building. It was definitely a deviant, demented, diabolical plan that was executed against my daughter. And that's why I've been saying, and I mean with every fiber of my being, when I'm talking to this person, you made my daughter your prey, and now you're my prey. That's the word that I want to constantly and consistently get out to whoever took my daughter. You know, it's just heartbreaking to hear these stories, just the simple things. They wonder, is my child okay? Because you have some, so many unknown answers. You know, you don't know what happened to your child. You know, one thing that bothers me a lot is that these missing individuals are not seen as the, the people that they are. I, we need to say their names. We need to see their faces, their mothers, their fathers, their daughters, sons, uncles, aunts, nieces, nephews. They are loved. They are missed. They are needed not only by their families, but by the community. And I think that's what's being lost. They're, they've become faceless and nameless, and we need to say their names. We need to keep them in the forefront. So where are Unique's kids today? They're going to school. They're, oh my God, they're such, you know, resilient young boys. I'm so proud of the way my grandsons have really been troopers about this whole thing. And I, I definitely consistently reinforce to them that I am still actively seeking, finding their mom and bringing their mom back to them. And I think and I hope that that gives them prayerfully some, some solace in this whole situation because for them to be so young when their mom was ripped away from them in such a savage way, you know, a lot of times that can, 
you know, really, really have a detrimental effect on children. And so far, by the grace of God, you know, my grandsons are performing like normal, you know, healthy, rambunctious little boys. My eldest grandson has talked to me in reference to him having issues sleeping now, even now to this day, because of the fact that, I mean, one night he went to sleep and his mom was there. And the next morning when he woke up, she was gone, which I definitely understand that having a serious traumatic effect on my grandson. So what was Unique like as a person? That's a good question that every time I'm asked it, it always makes me smile because my Unique is my sweetest, most you know, affectionate and compassionate child. She had a lot of passive, easygoing ways about her. She's always been a very happy, jovial, you know, comical, just, you know, love everybody and would do anything for anybody type of individual. As far as, you know, our whole family goes, her presence is just so sorely missed because You know, she could take all of our frowns and turn them into smiles just with her temperament, her personality and, you know, the character and caliber of young woman that she is. Could you describe for our listeners what Unique looks like? Maybe any distinguishing characteristics that she might have? Sure. Unique has... Um, Her name tattooed on her upper right arm, her deltoid muscle of her upper right arm. And she also has the name of her two sons, which is you, Andre and Richard, tattooed on the lower part of her back. She has pierced ears. She was taken with a chain that is very, very near to her, a sterling silver necklace. My daughter is a very, very fair-skinned young woman, medium height, say five, six to five, eight inches tall, very petite and slender build. And, you know, I don't like to sound cocky, but my daughter is a very, very attractive young woman. For pictures of Unique Harris, please visit our website, thinairpodcast.com. If you believe you've seen Unique or have information about what may have happened to her on the morning of October 10th, 2010, we urge you to call the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, or you can email us at thinairpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll pass the tip along for you. We want to thank Natalie Wilson from the Black and Missing Foundation, Valencia Harris, and Captain Michelle Karen for all speaking with us for this episode. We'd also like to thank Claudia Drace for all her amazing interning work, including the laborious task of transcribing all our interviews. And last but not least, Chris Reich for helping us record, edit, and master this episode. Our executive producers are Anthony Loper, Heather Cadieu, Elizabeth Farmer, Mistea Pena, and Bonnie Mortensen. If you want to be an executive producer, head over to patreon.com slash thinairpodcast to find out how. The music featured in today's episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. Their music and information can be found by visiting their website at sessions.blue. 
This episode also featured music by Chris Zabriskie. All of his music can be found at chriszabriskie.com. We'll be back with a new story in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs>